the Irish Times business podcast in association with Irish Life. We can help your company and your employees look forward to tomorrow. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. This week you'll be hearing about the decision of Ryanair pilots in Ireland to take strike action for the very first time. Maria Halloran of the Irish Times will talk me through the implications of that decision. In the second half of the show, I'll be talking to economist Jim Power and Cliff Taylor and Umber Kennedy of the Irish Times about the latest economic indicators. Unemployment is down to 5.1%, a low not seen since late 2007. What does that mean for the Irish economy? But we'll start first, as always, with a roundup of some of the main stories of this week. And I'm joined by Irish Times business reporter Peter Hamilton. Peter, you're very welcome to the show. Uh, we're you. going to talk about car imports first. Yeah, so new car registrations fell 4.5% in the first half of this year. It's this ongoing story about people importing more from the UK and Northern Ireland, very often because they're cheaper cars. So 12.8% was the increase in used car imports in the first half of this year. So that's why you're probably not seeing as many 181 plates as you, or sorry, you know, new plates as you've seen in, in, in previous years because the, the used car market becoming far more popular. 51,800 cars uh, were imported. Now, you have in, some in personal experience in this front, Peter, don't you? I do. So I, I imported from, from the North, and I, I know plenty of people who have imported from the North and the UK, and it, and it tends to be a far more cost-effective, shall we say. Uh, Go on, give us the numbers. Crunch the numbers for us. Uh, for, for me, I know that my car would have cost me about €10,000 more in, in the Republic. I wouldn't have been able to pay for that car here. I wouldn't have bought it here. Uh, I, I would have had to buy a different car, a, a less expensive mm. car, because that, that simply would have been too expensive. With sterling the way it is at the moment, it's easy enough and cheap enough for people to to transfer their euro into sterling, and therefore it makes some sense. Uh, so, so it looked at, it's 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 a very cost effective option. I know. So you got a, a nice shiny BMW from the north. Yeah, so I did. Yeah, yeah. Without going into too much detail about my own car, but uh, I did. Oh, come on, I, Peter, I got, let's, I got, let's. I got, a, I got a look. I got a nice car. I suppose the thing is the the more you go up in value, the more you tend to save. So, I, for example, I know somebody who bought uh, an Audi A6, and that was that was a, a two two year old car when three year old car when they bought it, and they saved about between 14 and 16,000 euros. So right. Well, you obviously are, mix some very good circles. Now, what about <laughs> diesel? Uh, what impact is that having on new car sales? And, you know, the issues around diesel being a dirty fuel and yeah. some ban- uh, some cities banning it and so forth. Well, just b- before we get on onto the impact, it's worth noting that diesel is still the dominant choice, still the dominant fuel choice for buyers. But I suppose what why the market is worried is because there's so much uncertainty and diesel, of course, is the one around which there is so much uncertainty. The, in, there are indications that we may see the price of diesel coming on par with petrol in the not-too-distant future. So that, that will deter people making what is a very big investment. So that's definitely a concern for the market as a whole. Yeah, OK. Now, FPD is one of the biggest uh, car insurers in Ireland. And um, there's a bit of an awkward segue, but bear with yeah, me here, Peter. Yeah. Um, and it's got its own uh, leadership issues at the minute. Uh, Fiona Muldoon, the chief executive there, under investigation by the company. Tell us about that. She is. It's it's a bit unclear at the moment, but uh, late on Friday night, we'll recap briefly, late on Friday night, the company put out an announcement saying that she was subject to an investigation. Uh, while it's unclear exactly and we don't know the precise details of, of what the investigation is about uh, the Sunday Times reported that Sarah Ryan the company's human resources director is behind allegations uh, against uh, Fiona Muldoon and that has resulted in the company doing uh, conducting an internal uh, 
uh, investigation. Now, it's worth noting the market hasn't, despite this being a very, no very rare occurrence, shares. yeah, there's no panic, hasn't really responded. Uh, only 1,000 shares of the company's 34.7 million were traded yesterday. Today was slightly more. There were uh, over 8,000, um, but that's skewed by one particularly large trade. Uh, by 2 o'clock, the shares were down about 2.3%. But again, 8,000 is, is fairly minuscule. It's not very many shares. And I suppose it's worth noting that perhaps shareholders are ignoring this particular event uh, in light of Muldoon's successful management of the company up to now. Uh, she has been largely pra- praised for its turnaround since she do- joined from the central bank. Uh, she returned the company to profit in 2016, having sold a few investments, cut back on the use of brokers, hiked insurance premiums and uh, and closing the company's defined benefit scheme. And this year, she paid the first dividend since 20, 2014. So she's a bit of credit in the locker. Yeah. So shareholders uh, prepare to wait and see what this investigation might turn up before making any uh, basically making any decisions about whether they should stay in or or sell out of FBD. I think that's absolutely that's there haven't been any sudden jolts so far. Yeah, yeah. we should say that uh, neither Muldoon nor um, the HR person, um, neither of them have commented to date um, on those reports. Uh, now, in terms of jobs, it's been a good week on the jobs front. We seem to be uh, having good weeks uh, every week, uh, pretty much on the jobs front. And there's been good news on the unemployment front as well. We'll have more of that uh, a little later on. But tell us about these new jobs that have been created. I know we're, we're getting weary with all the new jobs. Today alone, there were 275 new jobs announced. Um, the fintech group in Kerry, Fexico, they announced 175 jobs for roles in engineering, software and sales. And that's because they're venturing into new product development. The company has a, is building up a fairly significant employee base, 2,300 across 29 countries. Of course, of course Kilorglin and Kerry is their, their base and great for Kerry. Uh, Kerry is very proud of them. It produces or processes rather more than 10 billion in transactions annually. So so Fexco, a big company and a big boost uh, there. Then separately, another company, Spectrum Wellness, mm. they're going to create 100 jobs in Dublin as part of a 4 million euro investment. And uh, the, the health and wellness service provider uh, is planning new roles in account management, marketing operations, mm. product development. There's a job, I suppose, for, for, for everyone in the audience, as it were. Uh, and that, that those jobs there will, will treble the size of their workforce. Since we last spoke on Wednesday, uh, oh, last excluding week. today, mm. yeah, last week, excluding today, uh, there have been 176 jobs uh, announced in the Republic and, and big kind of uh, big announcements, uh, as it were. So... This hasn't slowed down at all and uh, there's no indication that it will, I suppose, as, as you will discuss later. All right, Peter, we leave it there. Uh, that's it for this week from Peter's uh, Roundup. Thank you for joining us. Now to Ryanair and the unprecedented decision by its pilots in Ireland to strike. This threatens the holiday plans of thousands of Ryanair customers and here to explain all is Barry Halloran of the Irish Times. Barry Halloran, explain to us what action the Ryanair pilots are taking and why. Okay, Kieran. Uh, at this stage, they have balloted in favour of industrial action. It looks like a uh, one-day strike next Thursday. Uh, my understanding is that would be the the start of a series of one-day strikes over coming weeks. Um, they the the dispute with uh, Ryanair and um, the directly employed Irish-based pilots that are members of. Of the Irish. How many are we talking about? What kind of number? Uh, there were 95 participated in the ballot. 94 of them voted in favour, by the way. Um, so it's, it's, it's in the region, I'm told it's in the region of 100 and the, the ballot figures seem to, seem to bear that out. Um, they're directly employed. 
uh, by Ryanair. They're members of the Irish Airline Pilots Association, which is in turn part of tr- Trade Union Forza, which is more associated with the public service, actually. But the, the row is fundamentally over pilot seniority, which for historic reasons is very important in how a you know, pilot system operates within an individual airline. It pertains to things like um, base allocation, uh, promotion, that sort of thing. The pilots are saying that they want a fair and transparent system uh, of getting seniority and of using seniority, if you like. Um, they have raised it separately too, but alongside the, the basic talks on uh, union recognition that have been ongoing between IALPA and um, Ryanair since the end of December, beginning of January, since the turn of the year, effectively. Um, you say seniority, Barry, but is it about money? Is that the no? The, the, a lot of this deals with a, a lot of this deals with the nitty gritty of where you're based, um, how how your leave is allocated, that kind of thing, and it is less to do with money. Uh, the senior and that those are the things that those are the things to which the seniority relates. Okay. Um, so they're they're not saying give us ten percent more more pay, at least not in this, not. In, in, not at this point. Not at this point. Okay. No. What's Ryanair saying? Ryanair has said nothing to date. Um, we uh, we obviously uh, put our questions to them yesterday in advance of today's story, and we're putting our questions to them again at the moment. Uh, now they, I'm assuming that they will have a response at some stage. That they're obviously working on it, um, but they haven't said anything just yet. So we're, we're, we're simply waiting on that. And that, I mean, we don't know what kind of contingency plans they may have in place for industrial action of any kind. Mm. Ironically morning. enough, uh, in the past when there's been uh, industrial action taken at, at Aer Lingus, for example, and I think as uh, probably pertains to British Airways as well, um, they've managed to keep certain services going by um, hiring in Ryanair planes and crew. I wonder if that's uh, something, that, and of course those uh, crew would have been non-unionised, at that time, so I suppose probably uh, you know an easy enough thing to do. But um, the reverse—it's unlikely that the reverse is going to happen on, on this occasion because uh, Aer Lingus and, and British Airways pilots and so forth uh, will be members of the same union that these uh, Irish Ryanair pilots will be. Yes, indeed, uh, Aer Lingus pilots are members of IALPA. Were this to to spread to to, to Britain, you've got BALPA the British Airline Pilots Association, with, which has just signed a sort of a, an initial recognition deal with, with, with Ryanair. Obviously, mem- they have members in all the other airlines. So I don't see, you know, that would go against the, the way trade unions work, which is that we all, that they all stand together. So, um, no, I, 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 don't see the, I, I don't see that as a possibility. I mean, if you were to do that, it would strike me that you would nearly need to go outside the ju- jurisdiction of the EU altogether, which creates problems, regulatory problems of its own, sure. I would say. Okay. What's the impact going to be on passengers, holidaymakers? We don't know, but uh, I don't know the precise impact at this point. It's it's too early to say. Do we know how many will be affected, let's say, this first one-day stoppage? This is this is information that, that, that Ryanair has rather than, any, than, than anyone else because they know what the bookings are. We don't. I mean, I guess at this stage, if you're a Ryanair passenger... Um, you probably need A, to contact the airline and B, to maybe make your own contingency plans if you're flying on, on Thursday. Um, but uh, the, the, the strength and depth of this, I don't know. If it affects 100 pilots, they employ around 300, I think more than 300 in this country. 
And given that it relates to seniority, I would assume that a lot of the people involved in this ballot are captains without whom you can't fly a plane. Now, I am speculating and surmising to a certain extent here. So it could have a measurable impact. It's going to punch a big hole in their yeah. services. Isn't it, it? it could have, yeah, it could have a measurable impact on their services. Don't forget, they have had a number of cabin crew strikes in, in Portugal where they've had to cancel numbers of flights, you know, 10 and 11 in a day. Um, I'm assuming that this could have a similar impact, yeah, at least. Right. And finally, Barry, uh, you know, this kind of action was unthinkable in Ryanair just a couple of years ago, let's say, even maybe 12 months ago. It would have seemed unthinkable. But the airline has opened the door to union recognition um, and the the pilots, I suppose, have been first through it. But cabin crew uh, in Ireland and elsewhere are looking for recognition uh, as well. Um, Is Michael O'Leary and the current Ryanair management team, are they geared up for this kind of environment uh, in the way that, let's say, you know, Aer Lingus and British Airways and Lufthansa and Air France and, and so on. They're, they're kind of used to dealing with these kind of industrial relations problems in the past. Ryanair's attitude has been, you know, two fingers um, to the unions and they just sort of press ahead. Yeah, well, this, is a, this isn't just a, and I don't think anybody realised this maybe last year or maybe at the end of last year, but this, this requires something of, God, God for, forgive me for saying it, a cultural change, if you like. You've got to remember that, like you say, all these other airlines, they're used to dealing with unions and the unions are used to dealing with them. There's a relationship there. It can be a bad one. It can be a good one. But there is a relationship of sorts there. Ryanair and the unions are only just building a relationship with each other. And um, in some cases, that may well have gotten off to a good start here. It doesn't appear to have done. But the the sort of whatever level of trust and rapport that you need for, for that relationship to work at whatever level... That hasn't evolved yet. I'm not saying that, you know, that's anybody's fault. I'm merely saying that's the way these things work. It hasn't evolved yet. I don't think Ryanair is necessarily... Ryanair just simply isn't used to doing business like this. So it has to acclimatise. And on, on the union side, I don't think the unions are necessarily used to dealing with them either. And, you know, both sides have to be able to put themselves into each other's shoes from time to time simply to be able to negotiate and, and talk to each other. And I don't think they've reached that stage. I don't think either side is geared up for the other, quite frankly. Is Michael O'Leary still the man to lead Ryanair in this environment? I think he is for the moment. Um, but I do think that this is going to prove to be a test of his leadership. Um, well, the, question, the question is whether or not he passes it. OK, Barry Allen, thank you for joining us. We're going to take a short break now. When we return, I'll be talking to economist Jim Parr and Cliff Taylor and Burke Kennedy of the Irish Times about the latest economic data out this week. Back in a few moments. Only 29% of us know how much we need to live on in retirement. Irish Life is changing that with Empower, a new approach to company pensions that helps change the way your employees think about their future. For more, go to irishlifeempower.ie or talk to your pension consultant. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information sourced for Irish Life June 2015. Now, welcome back to this Inside Business with Kieran Hancock. You can subscribe to this podcast for free on iTunes and it's also available on our website, irishtimes.com forward slash podcast. Now, on Tuesday, the CSO released the latest unemployment figures, which showed the rate declining to 5.1% in June. 
This is the lowest level since October 2007, which was about a year before the financial crash. Separately, the Living Wage Technical Group has suggested that the living wage should be increased by 20 cent an hour to 11.90. So what does all this mean for the economy? Are we at full employment? If so, how important is that? And if we are at full employment, then how will we attract the skills and workers needed in various industries such as construction to keep the strong momentum in the economy going? Joining me in the studio to tease out these issues are economist Jim Parr and Cliff Taylor and Owen Burke Kennedy of the Irish Times. Owen, we might start with you. Uh, just take us through those uh, CSO figures on unemployment. Yeah, so um, we have an unemployment rate that's now falling even more sharply than the Department of Finance anticipated. It's down to 5.1% uh, for June. In its recent summer economic statement, the department had forecast an average rate of 5.8% for this year, but uh, there was a substantial downwards revision made by the CSO in May. So now we're basically on 5%, a rate that uh, the ESI, among others, uh, sort of suggests is near to full employment. But no one has a real handle on where full employment is. And it's worth noting that we did actually dip under 4% way back in 2001, 2002, and that precipitated a big inward migration of workers. So we're kind of heading back into that territory, it seems. Yeah. Uh, Jim, what is full uh, employment? What level would you put it at? Well, um, as Owen said, based on past experience, uh, the closer you get to 4%, uh, the closer you are to full employment. And I think um, what, what we're going to find increasingly now um, is an increasing shortage of certain skills across the economy because, um, you know, the 120,000 or so who are now officially unemployed, um, I'd like to see what skills they have to fill the jobs that are now being created. You know, we had the creation of 100 jobs by Fexco. We had the Amazon 1,000 jobs very recently. So there's lots of big job announcements happening. And um, I think it's going to be a major challenge to fill those jobs. And I think across many sectors of the economy, if you look at construction, if you look at healthcare. Uh, care for the elderly particularly, there's going to be massive problems, I think, filling uh, the vacancies there. And of course, back in the early 2000s, we just had um, the Eastern European surge of migration happening. That's not going to happen this time. So it's not clear where, um, if we want external labour supply, where it's going to come from. So I think um, as a constraint on future economic activity, as a constraint on the profitability of the corporate sector, Mm. Um, and I, indeed, I, I we think saw, it's going to become a big issue, you know. We saw from figures over the past week that the HSE isn't having much joy no. in bringing Irish nurses home. Irish nurses would have gone to other countries uh, to earn a few bob and during the crash when they couldn't get work here or maybe there was better pay to be had elsewhere. We're having real problems attracting those people home. We are having real problems, absolutely. I, I mean, I'm not sure uh, the problem with nurses is down to pay levels. I think it has a lot more to do with the health system that they'd be coming back into. You know, it is pretty dysfunctional and it's not a great place to work. So mm, Hold on, I mean, isn't health services uh, yeah, but it's the Western world, aren't they dysfunctional pretty much everywhere? Yes, they are, but it, it would strike me that Ireland is probably worse than most at this stage. You know, if you look at the stories with junior doctors, if you hear the stories from nurses, I mean, it's, it's a system that is creaking very badly and it's going to be really, and the reputation it has at the moment Uh, particularly in the light of some of the scandals over the last couple of years, is very, very poor. It's going to be difficult um, to attract those people back into the Irish Health Service. Um, And particularly, I I don't think it's the biggest issue, but particularly at current uh, pay levels. So a major problem in, to me, actually, if you look out over the next 10 years, the biggest problem we face is the ageing population, care for the elderly, and how we're going to facilitate that, because the whole home care system is also pretty dysfunctional at the moment. So you just wonder where the resources are going to come from 
um, in terms of human capital, particularly to fill that um, void. It's going to be very, very difficult. Cliff Taylor, you've been writing about the options facing Pascal Donoghue in the upcoming budget in October. Uh, he's not going to have a, an awful lot of spare cash uh, to spend, particularly for uh, tax cuts. Um, what might he be able to do to attract people home? What measures might the government be able to take to incentivise uh, people to come into the sure. Irish economy? Very difficult to do it in, in one budget. Uh, I guess there, there are two things that come to mind. One is to persuade people that he's, uh, the government is getting to grips with the, with the housing crisis and the rental crisis. Obviously, that's yeah. not something that's solved in one year. Um, but that is a, a huge issue for anyone looking to go back to Ireland, whether they want to buy or whether they're gonna, they want to rent. How much will it cost to rent? Can they find somewhere? And if they're coming back to live, how much is it going to cost to buy a house? Sure, and all the indications, all these surveys that we see of late suggesting that Dublin... Uh, as a location, uh, you know, for, for expats and so forth, it's becoming very expensive. Yeah, one of the most expensive, according to the, to the recent Mercer survey. And I guess the, the other issue is um, the tax system. Mm. And, and it's, this is kind of a controversial area, I guess, because since tax relief started to be granted, uh, OK, we had the big tax impositions during the, the crisis and, and some winding back of them since about 2012. And there's been there was a conscious decision taken that uh, better off people didn't get any uh, got very little relief in the first few years, a little more the last few years. But but basically anyone earning over seventy grand has got little enough extra tax relief in the last few years, and most of the relief has been directed at kind of the lower and, and medium level. So I think the minister has a, a strategic decision to make in terms of where he wants to direct tax relief this time to attract people back. Uh, and one of the difficulties is the, 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 the divergence in sectors. So like the construction industry would be one of the main areas, uh, lower to medium earnings. Uh, and another area would be the finance area where banks are uh, relocating here and, and talking to recruiters is a real shortage in a number of uh, a number of sectors there. And it's going to be a real barrier in terms of getting companies to come here after Brexit. I suppose the most obvious thing, as the, as the government has indicated, is to, to do something in the middle level uh, to increase the level at which people enter the higher tax rate in Ireland. You know, every little helps. It's certainly the right thing to do. But in terms of the actual bottom line difference that's going to make to anyone's wages and salary and, and their take home pay, it's very little. I really think in terms of getting people back, the housing issue is the, yeah. the, housing issue is the one and, and not solvable quickly. Uh, Owen, uh, we also have this issue of the living wage, the so-called uh, living wage was coming into vogue in Ireland and the UK over the last uh, couple of years and a recommendation coming out from this uh, technical group that it should be increased by 20 cent an hour. Tell us about that. Yeah, well, obviously it's it's separate from the statutory minimum wage, which is set at €9.55 uh, Euros 55 an hour since the beginning of this year. But their recommendation is to hike up the um, living wage to 11 90 an hour. And basically, they're recommending a 20 cent increase per hour. And that's all based around the rising cost of rental accommodation. In their most recent report, they note that um, the cost of um, a lot of things like uh, heating, food, clothes has come down. Uh, they also note that uh, workers got a boost in the last budget from USC changes. But it's all been wiped away and undone by rising uh, rental, the cost of rental accommodation. Mm. Jim, is that true? I mean, it's probably true for people living in Dublin, but if you're living in some parts of rural Ireland, that, that probably hasn't been uh, wiped away, although I'm not sure how many companies are paying a living wage in rural Ireland. Uh, I, I suspect um, you'd find a lot more employers in rural Ireland paying the minimum wage, but not the living wage, uh, because, you know, in the hospitality sector and the retail sector, uh, there's not that many paying the living wage. I mean, from the perspective of a 20 cent increase in the living wage, 
Um, you know, you will hear a lot of complaints from some employer groups about this. But the reality is, you know, it'll translate into eight or nine euro per week um, for those that are going to get it. Um, and that's not going to make... That's not a whole hill of beans. No, it? it's certainly in a Dublin context, it not, it's not because uh, the cost of housing is just a massive challenge for the whole economy at the moment. And, um, you know, I, I suppose this yeah. is a step in the right direction. Jim, it's, it's, it's a simple, a, a simple yeah. question for yes. you. How are we going to solve the housing crisis in Dublin? Um, I suppose Mick Wallace had a very interesting contribution to the Irish Times during the week. Uh, that got a lot, a lot of negative feedback because of who said it. But actually what he said, I think, makes a lot of sense. You know, a pretty dramatic um, vacant site levy, for example, um, would bring more... He was suggesting a rate forward. of 25% rather uh, he, than... He, he, I think it's he, 3% starting he, off he, and a ramp was up indeed, there. and all of the exemptions that go with that vacant site tax. So I, I think that's one thing... That it's a bit draconian, though, Jim, it's dr- isn't it? It's draconian. I mean, you're a capitalist. How could you, how could you possibly stand over this? I'm not a capitalist, I'm an economist, Karen. <laughs> uh, no, the, 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 real, the reality is that um, whatever one's ideological perspective on this, you know, you would call a 25% vacant uh, site levy as draconian. Um, I would describe the housing crisis as pretty draconian. So I think that there's no easy answer to this, but we've got to make hard choices uh, that the... You know, the, the most recent revisions from the Central Statistics Office about the real level of housing completions is, is just another clear um, indication as to why we're in the crisis that we're in. We're just simply not building enough houses. So we've got to do whatever it takes. And some of this will be ideologically um, unpalatable for a lot of people, but it's going to have to happen if we want to solve this problem. And we're going to have to solve this problem because on both the rental and the owner-occupier side, it is just blowing the competence of the economy at the moment. And it feeds directly into the area of discussion about an economy approaching full employment, the need to attract um, inward migration into the country. They, if you're going to come into this country at the moment, you, the first thing you would look at is the housing situation. And that certainly would act as a major disincentive. Mind so you- perhaps there's an opportunity here for rural and regional Ireland because I suspect that the 100 jobs that are being created in Fexco and Kilorgland, for example, uh, the housing issue yeah, won't be a problem there. Yeah. Or 175, sorry. The housing problem won't be, or the housing issue won't be a problem there. But in Dublin, it's a major, major constraint at the moment. Yeah. Cliff? Yeah, I was talking to some recruiters recently, actually, and and there is a trend uh, of some companies now starting to move into, into rural Ireland for, for these major announcements. Maybe not rural Ireland, but certainly regional cities. Uh, and the way it was put to me was we've moved from everyone wanted to get to South Dublin maybe five or six years ago. Uh, then a lot of operations were moved out to the Dublin suburbs, to Sandyford, Blanchardstown, uh, Cherrywood, places like that to get some lower rent. Uh, and now people are looking beyond that saying, look, this is mm. a real issue now. Well, indeed, we, we can now sell this we had the in, term, in terms of lifestyle for, to, for employees yeah. and, and in terms of costs, we, we can now sell a location like Sligo. Or, or, we had the founder of Castus, which is uh, an Irish... Uh, there are know. limits to <laughs> <laughs> yeah. we, we We had the founder of uh, Castus uh, on last week and yeah. they won the Irish Times Innovation Award uh, last year. Mm. And he, uh, they're moving out uh, to the fringe of Dublin because, yeah. uh, and partly because of uh, accommodation reasons that uh, workers are prepared to live in Kildare and commute in um, I, I think it's out by uh, it's out by City West or, or thereabouts mm. and uh, they're prepared to commute in there it's not too bad a commute uh, but City Centre just wasn't working for them Yeah well I mean if, if you're out City West then the commute from Kildare is manageable uh, or me or whatever whereas if you're in City Centre you have all the issues uh, mm. 
in some cases there are train lines or whatever, but a lot of cases people need to drive to leave kids off yeah. to crashes or whatever. And, and but Cliff, surely it's good news for workers better. that were reaching uh, full employment in the sense that it'll bid up wages, no? Absolutely. Uh, it was one of, the po- one of the points I was going to make. I think, again, talking to recruiters over the last while, they noticed a real change in, say, the last four, five, six months. Uh, two things, companies are having to pay more to attract people uh, and they're also having to pay more to hold on to key, to key staff. Uh, so yes, I think wages are going to be bid up. They're not going to be bid up across the economy, uh, but they are going to be bid up in sectors where there is demand. So in, in, in finance, in, uh, in areas of the construction industry, even where wages have been very slow to rise, uh, there certainly is going to be, I think, significant pressure on wages, uh, particularly in, in, in key areas of, uh, you know, key areas of shortage. Jim. I, I just thought it was interesting when the um, first quarter labour force survey was published there a few weeks ago. Um, I think 10 of the 13 sectors contributed positive employment growth in the last 12 months. But one of the sectors that saw a decline, I think it was 3,800 in the 12 month period, was in the retail sector. Um, and I, I was kind of curious about that because we are seeing consumer spending coming back reasonably strongly. You know, retail sales data are generally pretty strong. Um, and yet employment in the sector is declining. Um, I suspect that's a sector that is now struggling to um, fill fill jobs, fill vacancies. And you also, of course, have the online um, impact phenomenon. on that mm. phenomenon. Abs- absolutely. But um, so, I, I, I mean, I would agree with Cliff. I think it's going to be a massive issue for certain sectors of the economy. Yeah. But I mean, you can go around any part. Maybe, maybe with a couple of exceptions, maybe a couple of, the, you know, Dundrum Shopping Centre or Grafton Street or something like that. But you can go around pretty much any uh, area of Ireland, whether it's rural Ireland or even suburban Dublin, mm-hmm. etc., and you'll see shops that are shuttered. Yeah. And you will see uh, units that have been empty for a long, long time and are struggling. If it's not a coffee shop uh, prepared to go in there or, you know, something similar, tattoo yeah. parlor or something like that, uh, you're not going to fill it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and, and that's, I mean, one, one of the things we, I mentioned, you know, that consumer spending was coming back reasonably strongly. I use the word reasonably because there's a caveat there. I mean, looking at the retail sales, which is just less than 40% of consumer spending, there's a massive gap opening up between volume and value growth. So volumes are growing very, very strongly. Converting that back into money is proving much more difficult because the personal sector is still stretched and it's stretched because of uh, we haven't seen much in the way of wage growth in recent years. Um, We've seen rents rise dramatically. We've seen house prices and housing generally soaking up more and more disposable income. So it's it's a challenging environment for any business dealing with the personal sector out there. Um, And and, and that's why uh, the proposed increase in the um, living wage, for example, uh, you will see a very negative reaction from that sector, for example, I suspect. Yeah. Owen, oh, do we know how many companies are paying the living wage? No, we don't. Uh, um, we have a few high-profile brands like IKEA and Lidl and Ali that have all signed up to it. But at the moment, the um, the group that actually uh, organises this wage rate, the living wage technical group, haven't actually uh, you know listed all the firms that are actually um, basically signed up to the campaign. So... At the moment, we can say maybe thousands of Irish workers, but we don't say how many. We can't say how many more, right? Jim, if if you were if Pascal Donahue came to you and said, "Jim, uh, give me uh, three things you do in the budget that might help solve some of the problems we have in the Irish economy," what would it be? Well, you know, I nothing can be solved in one budget. So what I would like to see is a sort of a, a medium-term strategy that is adhered to without um, deviation. So I I think in relation to personal tax, I would do one thing and one thing only. Um, I would try and lift the entry point to the top rate of tax. 
by about two grand every year over a five-year period. Um, I would not take any more workers out of the tax net, either the USC mm-hmm. or the tax net. So I need, we need to preserve the tax base. Um, you know, the big mistake we made back in the 2000s was we narrowed it dramatically. Um, we widened it when with the introduction of the USC. But Michael Noonan, in his last two or three budgets, you know, he was taking people out of the USC net again. I think that's a mistake because you just cannot create, you should not create a narrow tax base. So that's that. that would be my sole strategy on the taxation side. Uh, The second thing I think you have to do is to try and introduce whatever incentives are required to get the housing supply coming on stream. Um, I mentioned the um, vacant site tax of 25% that Mick Wallace proposed as something that might be considered. Um, I I have always believed that um, a cut in the VAT rate to make delivery of housing more profitable for builders, particularly in the Dublin market. Um, I think developer levies need to be looked at and perhaps give a a holiday for a while on development levies. So we need to look at all of these things to try and get supply on stream. And as I said earlier, a lot of this stuff ideologically will be totally unpalatable to a lot of people. But desperate times um, require desperate measures. And um, it is a supply side response Nothing has to happen on the demand side. Um, And I think that the one thing that has been resisted, and I think I hope we'll continue to resist it, is any political pressure brought to bear on the central bank to actually relax the um, lending criteria that were introduced a couple of years ago. So, um, so, Jim, yeah. we're told that we need to be building 36,000 houses a year to meet demand. There, thereabouts, anyway. Now, what evidence is there that even if we get to that level, that the housing crisis will be solved in inverted commas and that prices will start to come down because as Owen has made the point on this podcast before, we were building over 90,000 in the boom and prices uh, were still rising. Yeah, unfortunately we were building a lot of them um, in the wrong place Um, but but, but there was also the point that I mean, I suppose I hate going back over this old ground again, but uh, what was happening in the housing market in the run up to 2017, particularly in the last two or three years, whatever we built, I think was 93,000 houses in 2006, which was the peak. But at that stage, there was a feeding frenzy going on. It had nothing to do with housing supply. Anything that came on the market was just sucked up by people who wanted to invest in property. And um, I I suspect you could have built 150,000 houses in 2006 and you'd still Mm. have seen prices rise because of that demand. So uh, that that was an unusual time. I really believe we need to avoid that happening again. And one way of avoiding that is to make sure that there's a serious constraint on the amount of money people can borrow to feed that frenzy. Cliff? Yeah, I think think as Jim said, the difference back then was the huge credit bubble uh, massive growth in lending every year. What was it, 18, 20% at one stage? Yeah. Uh, in fact, credit has been, credit growth has been pretty flat in the last few years, only started to rise now in the last while. And, and the real challenge. Those prices are rising. They are. In, in, in 2000, sorry, to sorry, Jeff, ahead, yeah. it dropped, but it, uh, in 2006, um, there was 39.8 billion in mortgage lending. Um, back in about 2012, 13, around that time, it fell to under five. Yeah. Uh, this year to be about seven and a half, eight. Yeah. So f- almost 40 billion. So that was yeah. credit fueled. Yeah, sure. I, think I, I think prices are rising because supply has been so extraordinarily constrained. And also you've seen some international players come into the market to snap up some of what is available. But I, I think the, the point is that if you if you increase supply and if you can, if you can as Jim said, 
keep a lid on the demand, uh, resist pressure to increase the, the lending rules um, and to give people more leeway, then that is going to lead to prices falling. I mean, there are already signs in according to people in the property industry and parts of the Dublin market that the affordability limits are starting to kick in and that people literally can't afford, very few people can afford houses in some of the uh, more popular areas of Dublin now and are moving to, to other areas. Uh, now that's, uh, you know, that's unfortunate from another point of view because the, the demand just moves from one area to another, but it's an inevitable part of what's of what's going to happen, I think. Yeah, and I think it's, it's also worth pointing out that over the last few years, roughly 50% of houses bought and sold here were cash transactions they weren't mm. backed by a mortgage it's still a strong um, number but it's, it's, it's starting still, to taper it's, off it's a bit started as, as you would expect yeah. um, but uh, you know so the more that happens the more affordability will become an issue alright could I, I ask just uh, do you actually perceive that we'd go into a period where we're going to have declining house prices and a healthy economy because we just haven't had anything like that in, in, in three decades and the only time affordability was addressed when we had a huge crash. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I, I, I don't know, Owen, but uh, I think as the, as, the, as the old saying goes, prices can, can go down as well as up and, uh, you know... Well, Philip Lane made that point very recently. He can't. He? But I think we're still, I think we're still, away, from, still away away from it because the supply, as Jim said, is still so far below uh, what the demand is that unless we hit some kind of economic bump from Brexit or whatever and that pulls the, pulls the rug out from supply. Yeah. And finally, demand, at least. Uh, uh, finally, Cliff, what are the chances of an election before the October budget? I mean, it's been uh, speculated upon now and uh, maybe we're in silly season, I don't know. But uh, there, there's talk that possibly Leo might go in September. I don't think he will. Um, I think he's probably missed his chance. I think if he wanted to go, he should have gone in the springtime. Uh, I think it would look... I think whoever we've seen to call an election or to cause an election now, whether it be Fianna Fáil or Fianna Gael, I think it, you know the, that would be unpopular. Uh, there's a huge uh, European summit coming up in October on Brexit. Even if the decision is delayed from October, something's going to have to happen in November, December. And we saw from the last after the last general election, how long it took to form a government. So we simply can't afford to go into a period of, you know, of, 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 of run-up to an election, election itself, and maybe another couple of months forming a government uh, with, with all that stuff in play over the border, over East trade between Ireland and the UK. Um, you, you can say the government remains in place and the existing government continues to represent Ireland, but really that government has no has no standing internationally if it's, you know, if, if, if in that situation, I don't think they're only seen as a caretaker. Yeah. We can't afford that at the moment. Jim, would it, be, would it not be good if we went to the polls and we returned a government or a coalition government that had a strong mandate from the people rather than the minority administration that we have at the minute where there's a huge logjam uh, legislatively in, in the Dáil and uh, so forth and they really can't do anything without the approval of Finfall. What makes you believe that we'd get a government with a strong mandate? Um, I actually think we could end up with something even more fragile than we have at the moment. Um, so I, I think it would be grossly irresponsible to have an election um, as we're facing into the most significant period in, in generations in this country, and that is uh, the whole Brexit situation. Creating um, a political vacuum in the middle of that would be absolutely disastrous, and I think it would seriously undermine our whole negotiation position in what will be a very difficult process in any event. So I would... Are you any more optimistic about the outcome of Brexit? Uh, depends what day of the week you ask me, uh, to be honest. Okay. Um, I, I fluctuate wildly on this. I suppose my gut instinct is that we will, pragmatism will win out and we will get a uh, some sort of soft Brexit 
um, arrangement pushed out. Uh, but then um, a day later, you look at UK politics and it will convince you a hard Brexit Otherwise, is inevitable. So yeah. it's, it's, it just has since the beginning and it just continues to be um, characterised by intense uncertainty. Um, and that's not going to change very much, I think, over the coming months. So throwing an election in the middle of all of that, I think, would be, as I said, grossly irresponsible. And I hope our political system has more sense than that. All right. On that uh, rather glum note, uh, we'll leave it there for this week uh, from Inside Business. My thanks to Peter Hamilton, Barry Halloran, Jim Power, Cliff Taylor and Owen Burke Kennedy. Uh, my thanks also to Jennifer Ryan and Declan Collin on the production side. And don't forget that you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our Business Today email at irishtimes.com. And you can also follow the Irish Times business feed every day on Twitter and Facebook. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care. 